0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. The more we give to God, the more we receive from Him. So, our passage this morning is going to be, uh, the wise men, by the way, Marcus, I've never seen a guy do a better job cleaning up a coffee spill than you did this morning. Take a bow. Come on, stand Stand up, all right. The the very best job ever, cleaning up a coffee spill. Thank you, Marcus. We're looking together at Matthew 2. Would you stand with me? Verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now after hearing the king, they went their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east was going on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, They fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the magi departed for their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in asking God to bless his word this morning? Father, we, we come to you and we ask that you'll speak to us of the glory of your Son, that you'll reveal him to us today as you did to the wise men many years ago. And may we worship him. Give my words force, Father, from your power. And may we all congregate before Christ and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This Herod to whom the wise men came is Herod the Great. He's in his last year of life. He dies right almost at the time Christ is born, shortly thereafter. He is an old man, he's ruled for decades, and though we don't go to the point in our passage, we know if we were to read on in Matthew, it would tell about the slaughter of the innocents, that Herod, having been fooled by the wise men, that they said they'd come back, but the angel said, go another way, that he went out. Having determined when they first saw the star, he killed all the children in the region of Bethlehem who were under the age that he thought was the highest, the highest age that that child could have reached two years. So the slaughter of the innocents, the killing of the children, the male children under the age of two by a man whose grip on life is failing even as he does it. And the only reason the wise men... <coughs> These men that we are looking at together this morning are known as wise men. And in one Christmas carol, at least, called three kings, not three wise men. The only reason they're known as wise men or as kings is our reluctance to admit the real situation of these men. They're calling the form of wisdom which they practice, the lives they led prior to this journey that they took to see the infant Christ. According to the theological dictionary of the New Testament, which is, at least when I was in seminary, regarded as the best scholarly source on meaning and background etymology of New Testament Greek words, the Greek word (coughs) that Matthew uses for these men, magi, magos, the Greek word has this range of meaning. One in the Greek world, this word has four consistent senses. One, a, a member of the Persian priestly caste, B a possessor and user of supernatural knowledge and power, C, a magician, and D figuratively a deceiver. Okay? Member of the Persian priestly class, possessor and user of supernatural knowledge and power, a magician and deceiver. (coughs) Judaism, too. This is still from the theological dictionary, the New Testament Kittle. For Philo, uh, the Magos is sub-religious. This group is beneath religion. Philo accepts the Persian Magoi, the, the plural of Magos, only as they do magia, magic, as scientific research. The rabbis adopted magos as a loanword for magician. Jews must avoid magoi. The Septuagint has the term only in Daniel 2 2 for those who have magical and religious arts in Babylon. In the New Testament, this term, the term that Matthew uses for these wise men, magos, appears two other times, both in the book of Acts. It appears in Acts 8 where Luke tells the story of Simon Magus, the magician who claimed the power of God up in Samaria. And who, when he saw the power of of the Holy Spirit in the apostles when they came, because of the preaching that had gone on and the people in Samaria who'd come to the Lord, when he saw their power, he tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter. Remember, Peter speaks to him and says, you, you live in the gall of bitterness. You, and this man says, please don't let that, that faith that you just spoke come on me. It also appears in Acts 13 where Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey were traveling. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a magoi, or a, a, a magus, a, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul, sought to hear the word of God, but Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Luke goes on, and in Acts there, he tells how Paul responded in somewhat the same way that Peter responded to Simon Magus. This uh, mage, this Magus, Paul responds to by casting blindness on him for a time and Sergius Paulus the proconsul is, is converted as he sees the power of God so on the other two occasions this class of, of, of men appear in the New Testament they are evil obstructors of the work of God But the first time they appear in the New Testament they are these men who are pursuing Jesus coming to worship Jesus now we're going to engage in a bit of speculation it's probable but it's not found in scripture but it seems likely that these men it seems almost impossible that they're anything else than persian uh magicians that's what the meaning of the word in the greek was back then they came from persia they practiced the persian the persian magical arts the persian empire of cyrus of course is long gone Uh, after xerxes invaded greece the the Persian Empire went down at that, the failure of that invasion. And, and it became a, a, a sort of a land without a, a major power in Persia, modern day Iran. But Iran has a glorious history. And shortly after the, the fall of Xerxes and the fall of the, the Persian Empire, the Parthian Empire arose in the same place consisting of many of the same people in the same land. And that Parthian Empire lasted 500 years until about 224 AD. And for most of those 500 years, it was the primary competitor to Rome in the east. And there was constant warfare between Parthia and Rome in the east. To the north, Rome had the Vandals and others and the Goths and the Visigoths. But over to the east, we don't hear as much because we're not from that region of the world, most of us. But to the east... They were fighting the Parthians. One of Rome's greatest defeats took place in 52 BC at the Battle of Corae when the Parthians slaughtered a Roman army led by Marcus Licinius Crassus in modern-day Turkey. Over the next decade, between 52 BC and about 40 BC, rome several times sought to expel the parthians from the entire levant the the region of the middle east that we know of today as israel palestine jordan that region parthia sought to cast roman influence entirely out of that region now during that decade marcus antony of antony and cleopatra fame and julius caesar both won battles against the parthians but it wasn't a century of Roman glory or a decade of Roman glory because in 40 AD, the Parthians again invade to their west and they actually succeed in expelling Rome from all of the, what we'd call the Holy Land or the Levant, save the city of Tyre. Rome held to the city of Tyre and that's all it had in that whole region down around towards Arabia from Turkey. And the Parthians, as empires do, sought to install a king who would be favorable to them over Judea. Now the Hasmonean line was a Jewish uh, line of kings, and, and the, the Hasmonean king, who was, who was reigning at the time the Parthians came in, he was a client of Rome, uh, opposed the Parthians, and so they cast him down and put another Hasmonean over, over this region they had just captured, a man named Antigonus Mattathias in 40 AD and he was the last of the Hasmonean kings of Judea he led a fierce three-year war against the Romans for the possession of Judea his primary foe in, in the region was a man named Herod who fled to Rome in 40 BC was nominated to the position of King of Judah by the Roman Senate and returned with Roman help to fight this Antigonus Mattathias Eventually, he defeated Antigonus Mattathias with the help of Roman armies. And Marcus Antony of Antony and Cleopatra had this Antigonus scourged and crucified in 37 B.C., a sentence that Rome had never before pronounced on an enemy king. It was the only, or up until then, the only king that they crucified. It is this Herod, Herod the Great, who came to power in 37 B.C., at the very end of his life is visited by the Magi and in response orders the massacre of the innocent children in the region of Bethlehem. Now you can imagine then that the visit of these likely Parthian Magi is a stirring event for Jerusalem, that not only Herod but all of Jerusalem is disturbed by this group coming and from an enemy empire that has just recently ruled the whole land and installed their king over the country, and a king that Herod had kicked out and defeated about 37 years before, that when this group that has somewhat of the, you know, they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? It almost has a a declarative power to them. They come and they say, where is he? We have come to worship him. We saw his star. That the people in Jerusalem and Herod himself go, oh no, oh no, the Parthians, they're at it again. So Herod is upset, and Herod must treat this group that has come from the east very carefully. He does not want to offend the Parthians by ill treating these men, clearly men of significance. The gifts they bear speak to their significance. It is even possible that this visit from the Magi has kind of the character of an embassy from Parthia, that these are official envoys. We see their significance not only from their title and the gifts they bear, but also from the respectful audience they they are accorded by Herod. Herod in no way wants these men to know that he fears them. He does not want them to know what he intends to do after their departure. He's a trickster. And as a trickster, he is always seeking his own good. And so he's lying to these men. He's not going to let them know that he wants to kill this, what he views as usurper, this, this competitor for the rain. So in a sense, these men are the very opposite of the shepherds that we thought about last night. They are wealthy. The shepherds are poor. These men come from a great distance away. The shepherds are from the nearby hillsides. These are men of international renown and reputation. Persia is famous for this class of leaders. The shepherds are men of the sheep and pasture. These men represent a threat to Herod and Rome. Shepherds represent nothing of the kind. These are Parthians, thus Gentiles. The shepherds are Jews and Judeans. Yet there is a similarity. They have seen a message in the darkness. They have both been led by a light in the night sky. They have had their darkness illuminated by miraculous light from heaven. And they too have come to worship Jesus. Both sets of worshipers, the shepherds and the wise men, come from obscurity and return to it. We aren't told their subsequent stories, only that they came, they worshiped, they departed and went home. Now, honestly, I'd rather be a shepherd than a wise man, than a magus, because it's possible that these shepherds lived on to see Jesus in his years of power. and They realized the promise that they were given decades before when they saw him arise and glory flow. And I'd rather be them because they're Jews. And though I may not feel it when I'm in my comfortable bed, I'd rather be poor like the shepherds and a man of the fields than a wealthy aristocrat. These are simple men of the fields, the shepherds The others are sophisticates from the city. And so in many ways, the shepherds are more open to the news than these men, but these men, these men did come. I'd also rather be the shepherds because we're told that the shepherds rejoice and praise God on their return home, and that little bit of information seems to indicate that the shepherds continue to tell the story and that Luke when he sits down to write his his gospel account from sources that he says, I've talked to. That Luke learns how they returned home by talking perhaps to one of them, an old man who says, that's what happened. That's how it took place. So it seems the shepherds were changed permanently by their encounter in such a way that they continue to tell their story and to bear witness to the visit of the angels and how they were there when the infant Messiah was born, whereas the Magi quickly return to the fog of history. They depart from Bethlehem for the East, where their trail, at least in terms of biblical history, ends. So what can be learned from these men who came from the East? They are so exotic, so mysterious, and yet they speak to us as Americans today. In many powerful ways. First, as we look at these men coming to Jesus, we learn that no one lies outside the power of God to redeem and to bring to his Son. So we ask ourselves as an objection against faith and against God and we shake our fist at God and saying, what about those who've never heard about Jesus? I don't like you, God. What about those who have never heard? It's not fair and I won't worship a God who's not fair and who leaves people in the darkness. I don't like you, God. I don't like your sovereignty. I don't like that. And so I will not worship you. But that is precisely the problem If this is your thinking you are making assumptions about the darkness and the truth of darkness is that you don't know what's happening in darkness you're making assumptions you simply don't know so you read your opinions about God into the darkness but only God knows the darkness and God rules the darkness where you are not just as he rules the light where you live In the midst of the Parthian darkness, in the midst of the Persian night, in the midst of the Zoroastrian religion of the the sun worship of the Persians, God had established a witness. Was that witness the prophet Daniel? Perhaps. We don't know. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were in Persia? We don't know some other nameless exile from judah we don't know it's darkness we have no idea how or when it happened did these men's astrological arts lead them to jesus did their practice of the the worship of the sun in the heavens lead them to christ now you're going to say impossible But every one of us knows that our sinful pursuits were the things that God used to bring us to him. We didn't come out of a stainless, perfect background. Every one of us was called from darkness. Sinful pursuits, sinful lives are no barrier to the power of God. There are people in this church who came to God because they were thrown in prison. And you say, well... How could a Zoroastrian magus come to God through that sinful religion? God is God. God has won people from prison, from Zoroastrianism, from atheism. We're all here together and all out of the same kind of background as these men. So, Perhaps you think that God can illuminate your darkness, but not the darkness of people like these magi, people in the darkness of foreign lands, lands that you imagine lie outside the power of God's light. But God is able to redeem men and women from darkness, whether that darkness is American materialism and atheism or Islam or Judaism. They are all darkness. But the light of God is brighter than the darkest darkness. Do not lose sight of this. If you are in darkness, do not lose sight of the hope that is established for you in these men who came from darkness and found a Savior. God is willing and able to turn darkness into the light of His presence and His glory. He does it not just with shepherds and magi but with men and women today bringing us out of the darkness of sin out of the darkness of sadness out of the darkness of failure out of the darkness of addiction out of the darkness of loneliness and even suicidal thoughts into his glorious light. So if you're living in darkness turn to God ask him for light turn in repentance hate the darkness hate the sin and run from it and you will find the god of light don't lose sight of this either if you're a child of god because your witness is necessary you must speak but you must never forget that the power that converts the lost is the power of god not the power of you the power of god working through you he is your power all you have to do is speak just sow the seed speak to the lost say the word jesus christ to the lost god will attend your words with power and there's no one who's beyond the power of your words speak speak to people tell people about jesus shout about jesus shout that you have a savior shout what christ has done for you Second, we learn, as well as the darkness not being dark to God, we learn from these men how to come to God as rich, successful, important men and women. That's what we're taught by these wise men. And let's be honest, most of us resemble these wise men more than we do the poor, uneducated shepherds of the fields. We are, after all, we are all citizens of the wealthiest nation on earth perhaps the wealthiest nation ever. We live in security and ease. We are educated with a pagan education. We are important. All of us travel with an American passport which says to the world that we are privileged. How do rich men and women come to Jesus? Well, we come to Him as the Magi do with all we have. Not with empty hands, but with our hands full of everything we have. And we say to God, this is yours. Jesus never says, come to me without a commitment to me. Come to me with empty hands. God says, come to me and give me your all. This is the message of Christ to the rich young ruler. Give me your all. Give me your life. Give me your all and see what I make of you. Because what you're trusting in is your all, rather than me, unless you give it to me. And you can't have God and mammon, you can't serve God and money at the same time. So Jesus says, give me your all, come to me with laden hands, your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh, give it to me and I will return to you something of infinitely greater value. Come to Jesus with your hands full, full of this world's fleeting treasure, that moth and rust corrupt and destroy these men came with gold frankincense myrrh they left those behind they returned full of the grace of god they had met their savior and they worshiped him the savior of the world third we learn how gracious god is from his guidance of these magi These Parthian magicians who saw Jesus in the sign of the night sky are looking up at the sky, and there they find a Savior. Not literally, but the sign of the Savior. They go to Jerusalem, and there, the star that had initially guided them and made them aware that the king of the Jews had been born actually travels ahead of them and leads them to the very house where Christ is. God is leading them to glory out of darkness into glory. And it's incredible because they're looking up at signs in the sky out of their worship of the heavens and they find the sign of Christ. It's like Jonah anticipating death when he says, throw me out of the boat. I've rebelled against God. Throw me out of the boat. Throw me away. I need to die. And he's thrown into the ocean and suddenly a fish. And he's alive. He's alive. And in the fish and then on land and he walks and he talks about having been saved by God. It's like the crippled man at Bethesda whom Jesus asked if he wished to walk. That man who went to his feudal post beside the feudal waters for him at least. He has no expectation of anything but more futility. But Jesus comes and he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know... That before him as he's lying there by the pool of Bethesda, crippled as he has been for years and years and years, the Son of God is standing, the Savior of the world. But Jesus says, do you want to walk? And he is healed. Jesus tells the servants at the wedding of Canaan, go and grab those big vessels, six vessels, each containing 20 to 30 gallons of liquid. Fill them with water. And they do so. Somehow... When it's tasted, it's not water, but the best, purest, richest wine that anyone's tongue has ever tasted. Jesus is on the cross, and beside him are two thieves. They both mock him initially. But then, as the hours pass, one sees and he realizes that the man between them is not like him. And as the other man continues to mock Christ, this first man says, Hey, wait a second. He's not like us. And then he turns to Jesus and he asks Jesus a simple question. Will you remember me? Will you remember me? And Jesus says this very day you will be with me in paradise. Do you understand God? If you look to God for hard things and punishments and A nasty, brutish life. You don't know him at all. You just don't know him. Do you understand God? He is rich in love, He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He gives nothing that is not good and perfect to his children. He is liberal. He loves men. A father who is rich in love. So turn to him. He is gracious beyond your ability to even comprehend it. Turn to him. Ask him. If you are in darkness, ask him for light. If you're mired in sin, ask him for the will to repent. If you're lonely, ask him to fill you with the presence of his spirit and the glory and the joy. If sin has defeated you and made you its slave, say to the father, father, take the chains off, turn to him. And to ask you do not have because you do not ask and you do not ask because you do not understand the incredibly loving gracious wonderful nature of the God in heaven who calls you to be his son your father let us pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your word We thank you for these wise men and what they teach us about you. We pray, Father, that you'll bless the day of everyone here with your presence. May it be a wonderful Christmas filled with your joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.